Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, inventor of my pillow, here to tell you about my Giza Dream bed sheets. I made sure that they would be everything you'd ever want in a sheet set. I started with the world's finest cotton called Giza. It's only grown in a region where the Sahara Desert, the Nile River, and the Mediterranean Sea all meet. The long staple cotton makes my Giza Dream sheets ultra soft and durable. They come with extra wide pillowcases to fit over any pillow and extra deep pockets to fit over any mattress. Not only that, they come with my 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. And now you can get the best sheets ever for the best price ever. When you buy one of my Giza Dream bed sheet sets, you'll get another one absolutely free. I personally guarantee that they'll be the most comfortable sheets you'll ever own. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener Specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza Sheets. All you got to do, Renegade Nation, is enter the promo code RENEGADE or call 1-800-889-6817 for these great specials. That's 1-800-889-6817. Use the promo code RENEGADE. Please be aware, the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night, frighteningly imagined creatures, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries. But I promise all sorts of weirdness. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's dark enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, we have a very interesting listener suggestion. So I hope you guys like it as much as I did. And with that being said, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, as always, my darlings, is yours. So choose your poison accordingly. All right. Now for the game part, how about every time I say boy, that will be a single shot, and every time I say police, that will be a double shot. Now that we have the business end out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma. So don your Sherlock hats and grab your best sleuthing materials as we dive into today's offering of... The Disappearance of Walter Collins and a Mother's Undying Hope, the real story behind the movie The Changeling. On March 10, 1928, nine-year-old Walter Collins donned a lumber jacket, brown corduroy trousers, black oxfords, a gray cap, and set off to see a movie in the Mount Washington neighborhood of Los Angeles. Walter never returned home. Christine Collins, his mother, a telephone operator, reported her son missing five days later on March 15th. 
The disappearance of nine-year-old Walter Collins in 1928 in Los Angeles set in motion one of the most incredible series of events of the decade. The disappearance not only included child endangerment, but also brought to light female disempowerment, corruption, and flagrant mistreatment of those involved in the case. But on March 10, 1928, Christine Collins discovered every parent's worst fear. Her son Walter was nowhere to be found. While the police suspected that Walter had simply run away, Christine feared the worst. She refused to believe that her young boy would run off, so she came to the dreaded conclusion that he had to have been kidnapped. Now, with the suspicion that Walter had been taken, the police began to scan the Collins' street and the neighborhood of Lincoln Heights in Los Angeles. Local thugs were targeted, questioned, and interrogated on the whereabouts of Walter, but the search turned up nothing. It was not until witnesses were sought out that a neighbor, Mrs. Baker, claimed that she saw Walter in an automobile begging to be released in the company of two foreign-looking people. Other neighbors gave information as well. They said that days prior to Walter's abduction, an Italian-looking man, along with a woman, were asking for Walter's address. All information and all leads led to nothing. There was simply no trace of Walter that led the police to finding him or finding out who had taken him. After searching the Lincoln Park Lake for Walter's body, and after a massive search of the northeastern part of the city, neither Walter nor any trace of him was found. Walter had now been missing without a trace for over a month. At that time, the city was still reeling from the kidnapping and gruesome murder of a 12-year-old girl by the name of Marion Parker that had happened only three months earlier. Tips of alleged Walter sightings started coming in from as far away as San Francisco and Oakland. In one bizarre tip, someone claimed they saw the boy at a Glendale gas station, his body wrapped in newspaper with only his head visible. Police searched for months, but still no Walter. Christine Collins, as you can imagine, was devastated, but she remained hopeful that each day she would hear news of her young son. Months passed, and she had to work daily with the racing thoughts of Walter's fate constantly in her head. Losing sleep and having little motivation to continue her normal life, she did not surrender to the thought that Walter was gone forever. Five months after Walter's disappearance, a miracle happened. Walter had been found. It was now August, and Christine received the confirming news that Walter was alive in DeKalb, Illinois. It's hard to imagine how much joy, love, and excitement Christine experienced when she heard that news. Her persistent hoping seemed to have worked. The child told authorities he was Walter Collins and gave authorities a hazy story about his abduction, and then spoke to Christine over the phone, and Christine paid the $70 to bring her son back to Los Angeles. Walter was immediately put on a train to Los Angeles to be returned to Christine, 
the reuniting of mother and son was to be celebrated as a massive success of the police force. But as the approaching train came to a stop, with the anticipation of a happy reunion after five agonizing months, Christine immediately exclaimed that the boy who descended from the train was not her son. What Christine thought was the answer to her prayers, the miracle of a lifetime, proved not to be the case. The boy standing in front of her was not her son. Captain J.J. Jones of the LAPD could not believe what Christine was insisting. Jones explained to Christine that Walter simply seemed to change because of the duration of the months and the traumatic experiences that he had encountered. Christine completely rejected Jones's explanation. She instead insisted that she would know her own son, no matter the circumstances. Captain Jones would not take Christine's word for it and would under no circumstances let it be known that the Los Angeles Police Department had made a mistake. Trying to avoid humiliation, Jones told Christine to take Walter home and try him out for a while to see if her memory would clear to see that this was indeed her son. Christine, feeling the pressure from both the public and the police about the reunion, agreed to take the boy home. Subsequently, the police began to question Walter in hopes of finding his abductor. He was questioned on how he had escaped the kidnapper, and the police wanted to know how he had ended up in Illinois. Police and doctors were unable to get straight answers from the boy. He said little to nothing to them. And for the next three weeks, the boy stayed with Christine until she absolutely realized that this boy was not her son. It was as if he was keeping a secret, and no one could get the boy to say anything that he knew. Christine knew that the boy was not Walter, but she agreed to house and care for him. But she still sought to prove that she was right. She did not want the police to stop looking for the real Walter because she knew that he was still out there. Christine used Walter's dental records to prove the difference in Walter and the boy who now lived with her. Those records did indeed demonstrate a marked differences in the two boys' teeth. Christine then took the dental records to Captain J.J. Jones, but the dental records proved to be no help to her. Christine found it suspicious that the boy was one inch shorter than Walter, and she used those dental records to prove that he was in fact a different child. Christine told the police, yes, he looks like Walter, and in some ways he acts like my son, but still I'm not certain. You see, Walter was quiet and well-behaved, he always called me mother. This child calls me ma, and at times he is hard to handle. I certainly hope that he is my son, but somehow I can't bring myself to believe it. The police fixated on closing the case because of public pressure, insisting it was Walter. They conducted a series of tests to prove the boy was Walter. They had the boy find his way back home from memory and brought in Walter's pet dog who allegedly recognized the boy as its owner. But still Christine was not convinced. Allegedly, LAPD Captain J.J. Jones told Christine, and I quote, What are you trying to do? Make fools out of us all? Are you trying to shirk your duty as a mother and have the state provide for your son? You are the most cruel-hearted woman I've ever known, 
you are a fool, end quote. Not only did Jones not believe Christine, even with the records, he concluded that Christine was only trying to humiliate the Los Angeles Police Department. And Captain Jones would not stand for this slander, especially by a woman. So Jones took immediate action and had Christine committed to a psychopathic ward of the General Hospital to be placed under observation under Code 12 internment, which was intended to jail anyone who was proving to be difficult. Christine remained in the hospital under harsh circumstances. She was treated inhumanely and fell victim to different forms of medicine to try and bring her to her senses, and for her to admit that this boy was being the true Walter. Ten days passed, and then good news came that released Christine. The believed Walter had finally confessed to not being the real Walter, that he was really Arthur Hutchins Jr. His true name was discovered even after he provided yet another fake name of Billy Fields. When questioned as to why Arthur would pose as Walter, Arthur admitted that when he saw a picture of Walter and saw their resemblance, he saw an opportunity. He knew that if he pretended to be Walter, he would have a one-way ticket to Los Angeles and an increased chance of making it in the movies, and even meet some of his favorite stars. The disappearance of Walter Collins would now resume from the very beginning. With no leads, Christine returned to her job and was back to where she had been for nearly half of a year. Her daily routine remained. She would work, go home, and hope to hear from Walter. Christine had been correct the entire time. The kid the police had dumped on her was not her missing son, but instead Arthur Hutchins. After Arthur's mother died, the boy ran away from his father and stepmother. He was hitchhiking around the United States when in a DeKalb, Illinois cafe, someone told him he resembled a missing boy from Los Angeles. When he was picked up, juvenile authorities were skeptical about his story, but police were so desperate to close the Collins case that they insisted on its veracity. As for why Arthur lied, the 12-year-old told authorities he wanted to go to Hollywood to meet cowboy actor Tom Mix. Christine was finally released from the psych ward on September 13th and sued the Los Angeles Police Department. Captain J.J. Jones was suspended from duty by the LAPD, though he was later reinstated and ordered to pay Christine $10,800 for the abuse she suffered under his custody. However, J.J. Jones never paid. Meanwhile, the real Walter Collins was still missing. And many theories have been brought up throughout the years, the first of which, Walter J. Collins, Walter's father, believed his former fellow inmates may have kidnapped Walter for revenge. See, Walter's father was serving time in Folsom Prison on robbery charges at the time, and the elder Walter worked at the prison cafeteria, and his responsibilities included reporting the violations of other inmates. And because of this, he could have made many enemies. The second was belief that Walter was kidnapped by a pathological liar by the name of Gordon Stewart Northcott and was eventually murdered on Northcott's chicken farm. 
Days after Christine was released from the psychiatric hospital and approximately 40 miles east of downtown Los Angeles, immigration officers were closing in on a three-acre chicken farm in Wineville, California. They'd received a tip about an illegal worker who had been smuggled across the American border with Canada. The chicken farm belonged to Gordon Stewart Northcott, and after he convinced his father to buy him the land in 1926, Gordon claimed he needed help running the farm. So he drove to Canada to visit his sister, Winifred, in Saskatoon. That's right, I said Saskatoon. It's funny, say it again, Saskatoon. He talked Winifred into letting him take her 14-year-old son, Sanford Clark, with him to the farm. There, Gordon began to physically, emotionally, and unfortunately sexually abuse Sanford. Sanford's story, unfortunately, was only the start of the horrors that young men met at the hands of Gordon Northcott. Gordon had a pattern of kidnapping and murdering boys, then dissolving their bodies in quicklime. In August of 1928, Sanford's 19-year-old sister, Jessie Clark, came to visit her brother on the farm. Sanford told her everything that had happened. Jessie alerted their mother and contacted the American consul, telling them that Gordon had smuggled Sanford from Canada. When investigators got to the chicken farm, Gordon, along with his obsessive mother, Sarah Louise Northcott, had fled. Police found blood-soaked ground and bodily remains around the ranch, and Sanford was safely taken into police custody. Items belonging to missing young boys from Southern California were found about the property, including Boy Scout badges, library books, and letters written to their parents. Nelson and Louis Winslow, 10- and 12-year-old brothers missing from Pomona, as well as a Mexican boy by the name of Alvin Gothia, were among those victims whose possessions or remains were found. On September 15th, Sanford told investigators his story. Police showed him 30 photos, hoping to identify other victims who met their fate on the farm. One that Sanford positively identified was Walter Collins. Gordon and his mother were arrested in Calgary, Canada on September 20th and extradited back to the United States to stand trial for their crimes. Gordon initially confessed to the murder of nine young boys, but was only charged for the deaths of three. There weren't enough evidence for him to be charged in the death of Walter Collins, but Gordon was nevertheless sentenced to death by hanging and was executed on October 2, 1930. Though Gordon wasn't convicted for Walter's murder, Gordon's mother spent the rest of her life in prison after confessing to having killed Walter with an axe and burying him in a chicken coop. The notoriety from the gruesome murders was so bad, the town of Wineville decided to separate itself from that chapter of its history, when in 1930, it renamed itself Mira Loma. As he awaited execution, Gordon sent Christine a telegram saying he would tell the truth about Walter if she came to talk to him in prison. Christine went to San Quentin on the eve of Gordon's execution, but Gordon backpedaled saying, I don't want to see you. I don't know anything about it. I'm innocent. Gordon also left several notes in his cell, saying, some saying he'd never met Walter, some accusing Gordon's father of kidnapping and murdering the boy, 
A pathological liar, it's impossible to know what Gordon said was true and what was fabricated. Five years after Gordon was put to death, one of the young men thought to have been murdered on the chicken farm turned up alive and well, opening up the possibility that Walter too may have escaped a fatal encounter in Wineville on that chicken farm. There was physical remains found on the farm proving that boys had actually been there, including the Winslow brothers, who had gone missing only 30 miles away from where Walter had been taken. Library books belonging to the boys and clothes had been found in the chicken coop where the Northcotts kept the boys locked in. A note written by the Winslow brothers was even discovered simply saying, don't worry, we are fine. When Sanford took the authorities to the graves, the bodies no longer remained. Only pieces of bodies were found. And of course, Gordon Northcott and his mother had emptied them and burned the bodies and remains in the desert before Jesse Clark informed the authorities about the negative conditions that Sanford was facing. Some human bones and a blood-soaked mattress did turn up and it proved that Nelson and Louis Winslow, Walter and a ranch hand, Alvin Gothia, had all been tragically murdered. It was December the 3rd when Gordon Stewart Northcott confessed to the murders of the Winslow brothers and Alvin Gothia. Sarah Louise Northcott confessed to the murder of Walter. Gordon Northcott hinted that there were more than four boys that fell victim to his murderous activities. It is believed that the Northcotts may have been guilty of killing at least 20. Gordon Stewart Northcott was found guilty of having committed at least three murders and sentenced to hang. His mother, Sarah Louise, was also found guilty of the murder of Walter and sentenced to life in prison. But this did not please Christine at all. Walter's entire body had not been found, so she still held out hope that her son might still be alive. She decided to go meet the man who had said he had taken Walter, Gordon Stewart Northcott. She met with Northcott to discuss whether or not he and his mother had truly killed her son. And although Northcott had previously admitted to the killings being done by them, he told Christine that they did not kill Walter. Christine believed Northcott. She chose to believe that this man did not take any part in killing her son, so that she could hold out hope that one day he might return to her. The sad part is, is I think we all know that he really did kill Walter. These slings have become known as the Wineville Chicken Coop Case Murder. And Gordon Stewart Northcott was hung on October the 2nd, 1930 at San Quentin, California. Christine Collins was granted $10,800 against Captain J.J. Jones for his sending her to a psychiatric ward and for his denial at believing her claims that the boy returned to her was not Walter. Jones, of course, never paid her and was only given a four-month suspension for what he had done to her. Christine never gave up hope and she always believed that Walter remained alive and remained unfound for the remainder of her life and I guess that's the way we would all hope that it would end unfortunately I think we all kind of feel in our hearts that Walter was probably among the remains that were found in Wineville and his mother just couldn't bring herself to believe that he had gone but she went to that place that we all end up at and hopefully found her Walter. 
And with that, we have come to the end of our episode. I thank you for joining me here today on Renegade Talk Radio, and I hope you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on what you think about today's episode. You can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, you just want to share what you think, you're bored and you need somebody to talk to, guess what? Drop me a line. I do reply to every single email. And on that note, that's all the time I have for you this evening. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And you guessed it, don't forget to tune in next time. See you, my heathens. I love you. We don't sugarcoat shit. <laughs> this is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.